0: from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, your host of Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. Today I have a returning guest, Bernie Gonzalez, the creator, writer, and artist of his horror noir comic, Midnight Mystery. Yes, Ezekiel Z. King is back for another Midnight Mystery. Originally published through Alterna Comics, Bernie has gripped the reins and is now handling Midnight Mystery's printing and distribution. Bernie will explain why he stepped away from Alterna, took a break from making comics, and felt now was the time for Zeke's return. Bernie's previously published Midnight Mystery comics are remastered and collected in eight by ten and a half trade paperbacks, and expanded with additional material. Volumes one through three are now available on his website, mysterycomic.com. By day, Bernie works in marketing. Although he is passionate about making comics, he finds self-promotion more of a chore. As we discuss why this is the case, Bernie also shares his thoughts on what it takes to make a great comic, and even a great podcast. Discover how Bernie uses social media to share with followers what interests him, and how that helps with self-promotion of Midnight Mystery. We share thoughts on our favorite classic horror TV series, Cold Check the Night Stalker, Dark Shadows, and more. Warning have a box of tissues nearby before listening. We tell painful stories of culling our physical media collections, upgrading DVDs, and the uniqueness of those old VHS tapes used to record broadcast television shows. What forgotten treasures might be found on these analog recordings not available on retail DVDs and Blu-ray discs? Find out now by joining my guest, Bernie Gonzalez, here now on Creator Talks. welcome
1: back to Creator Talks. Chris, thanks for having me. It's been a while, but uh, thanks for having me back on your show, and thanks for uh, keeping the show going. It's kept me sane over uh, the last few months, so thank you.
0: Oh, great. It's been driving me insane, but I'm glad it's keeping you sane.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've had some great episodes, and and I'm glad – You know, as we've all kind of figured out what this new normal is, and in my case, working from home, I've had the opportunity to listen to more podcasts and expose myself to more shows, and and you are definitely one of the uh, the pillars in my podcast
0: listening. So thank you for keeping it going. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, I enjoy it, and there's a lot of good stuff coming. It's a way to socialize with people because, you know, we're not out there seeing people face-to-face that much or face-mask-to-face-mask that much. So this is kind of a great way to connect, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you and have you on the show. And Ezekiel Z. King is back. He's back from Warband Night Mystery. So let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. Now, you used to get your books published through Alterna. I have the first couple of volumes, first couple of stories through them, and now you're striking out on your own. You have your own website for this. You'll be publishing the books through another publisher. You're moving forward with the series. So as much as you want to share, because I don't want to dwell on this too much. This is about you, not about somebody else. Why did you decide to go on your own? I think it was time. It's probably one of the only situations where I can ever say this
1: with some context. So if you're listening to this, folks, um, you have to listen to the whole thing. (laughs) This is probably one of the only times where the pandemic was good. And I'm only speaking for myself because it forced me to reevaluate, kind of uh, self-reflect a bit and kind of figure out where I was at. Um, You know, I think it was a case where, at least for me personally, when I was thinking about my day job and the effect of the virus and layoffs and restaffing and more people doing more for less, you know, I knew that the day job had to become a priority. I had to keep a roof over my head, I had to take care of my family. And as much as I loved comics, as much as I loved making Midnight Mystery and those single issues uh, that you mentioned uh, you were kind enough to pick up, I had to stop. And I knew it wasn't fair to the publisher. Uh, it wasn't fair to the fans at the time to just kind of work with deadlines and at the time working with Diamond and just working within you know the industry confines to say, you say you're going to make a book by this day. We're expecting you to sell it because the comic shop owners are expecting to have this product and, you know, the domino effects of not being reliable to comic shops, to fans, to a publisher. I'll I'll just be fair. Like I couldn't deal with that pressure. So I just made the decision that eliminated a lot of decisions and just said, you know what, I'm going to focus on the time where I need it most, my family, my job, comics will kind of sit on the sidelines for a little bit. And yeah, that was probably... The better half of 2020. And it wasn't until about maybe around the summer doing the the debrief on it. I'm going back. I'm like, I'd bought an iPad. And maybe this is uh, going off a little bit, but this will give you some context timeline wise. I'd bought an iPad early on in the pandemic, thinking, all right, well, I can use it for work and a few different functions, but then maybe I can kind of train myself how to draw digitally here and there for fun to at least kind of keep that energy going. And then around the summer, I really started digging into it. That's when I started thinking, okay, well, between work, maybe I can squeeze some time to do a few doodles here and there. Drawing fan art, that's what it was. But it really wasn't until late 2020 that I started looking at time and having a little bit more stability with work and family was okay. outside of, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were affected by it. My family certainly was. We we did have some folks that are now dead because of the virus. So Mm -hmm. that was terrible. But, you know, just kind of looking at all that and thinking, all right, you know what? I had a great opportunity to talk to a lot of fans, to have opportunities to talk to people like you. And let me see if I can kind of do that again, if I could rekindle that again. And I had some Midnight Mystery work that was incomplete uh, when I had to kind of suspend it the first time around in early 2020. And I thought, well, at a minimum, I have to finish this. And I don't know, then next thing you know, I was just like, you know,
0: I've got to keep this going for a while. That's kind of where we are now. (laughs) Well, you've got your own site, and you have the books on the site. Well, you have now a collection, Volume 1. So for longtime fans like myself or people that want to get on board, they can get those first comics. But for those who haven't read the book, we're fans of Kolchak and other kinds of horror movies. So tell us about Zeke how he fits in with the story, and who this might appeal to.
1: Midnight Mystery is a suspense horror comic book that follows the strange adventures of Detective Ezekiel or Zeke King. So if you were to mash up Supernatural, X-Files, probably the best example Although I find that based on age, uh, mileage varies uh, by bringing up Kolchak the Night Stalker. <laughs> Some folks who just say, I don't know, you said a lot of continents. I don't understand. Um, but Supernatural <laughs> X-Files, if you kind of get the sense of those, a monster of the week with this overlying conspiracy that happens to stretch out over seasons, that's midnight mystery. And if you put it in the world of noir movies like Maltese Falcon, uh, The Long Goodbye, things like that, Richard Stark. And you have the aesthetic of Batman the Animated Series or Darwin Cook's New Frontier. And I know I'm putting myself in way better company than I should be. But that gives you a sense for the tone, for the vibe of Midnight Mystery. You have this detective that has all the things you would want in a kind of like typical late night movie, black and white detective type of movie. You know, the trench coat, collar popped up. He's got the fedora and he's walking around in back alleys except in the world of Midnight Mystery – Sometimes that back alley may have a goblin or a zombie. And that's where Ezekiel King's uh, days get a little bit more interesting because he may handle a regular insurance fraud case or something like that. But then he also does handle the occasional banshee or zombie soldier that's come back from the dead. So in Midnight Mystery, like you mentioned, uh, Volume 1, of the first stories that kind of set up his world. And also, I hesitate to say the villain, but it's really more a foil in Count Karloff. And I know, Chris, you you know, we're both fans of Sven yeah. Oh, so yes. if you kind of think if Sven uh, Gulli had, you know, is Breaking Bad, <laughs> that's kind of what <laughs> Count Karloff is. Again, better company than the stuff that I made should be. But, you know, if you're listening to it and thinking, what is this about? That kind of gives you an idea.
0: I've missed this. I really have missed reading these because when it was previously published through Alterna, the cream of the crop. There were maybe two or three titles I really liked. This was right up top. This was definitely one of the best, and it's the kind of thing I like. Two things close to me is noir films and horror, and it's got all of that. And I'm glad that you're in control of it now because at times, as you talked about distribution, and even during the pandemic, things have been spotty. It was hard for me to get a hold of it at times, at least through my comic shop where I used to shop. So now that I can just go to your site and get it and get completely caught up on everything and get more, and I understand that the stories are remastered. So the ones that were originally published, how are they remastered in this one volume?
1: That's probably just chalked up to my OCD and not paying attention to, <laughs> to Jack Kirby's wisdom where he just said, you know, I always remember an anecdote and I'm sure I'm remembering this incorrectly. So if someone's out there listening and they're like, Bernie, you're wrong. I'm like, you're probably right. But there was a story i heard, Jack Kirby drew a page, he drew a character with four fingers, an editor brought it up and he just says, I'll get it right the next time. And <laughs> that's something that in time as as I mentioned, you know, having a bit of a, of a hiatus, stepping away from comics. Mm. When I went back and started revisiting the pages, you know, pulling out the issues, looking at them on my iPad and seeing that. And I don't know, Chris, this is interesting because like as a reader, do you do digital comics as well or do you do strictly print comics?
0: I do both. I mean, I really have a penchant for print mostly in terms of back issues. I must read them that way. Even if they're beat, I have to read them that way. Newer stuff, I do some uh, digital. Would you
1: say that the print, especially older back issues, is it out of convenience? Some back issues are more expensive or is it also to kind of tap into that nostalgia of maybe an issue you were never able to have as a kid or you did have as a kid or now you have a better copy? You know, is, is there a factor of that
0: involved too? You know, a lot of it is getting the nostalgic feeling of uh, reading something. Either I already had that was beaten, and I want to get a nice copy or something I haven't read but it's from that same period and I want to see the ads. I want to feel the paper back then. I want to smell the paper because it takes me back. That olfactory sense can take you back. And it's just kind of like a comfort food to me for the brain. I have to have that.
1: I think that's definitely a case where having stepped away from comics for a bit and getting back, that's what I was missing. Mm. The, the idea of being able to create that, to be able to create the kind of comic that has a, you know, kind of a... A retro ad, but that's very much in the spirit of the Charles Atlas. All those ads that we saw with the little army men that Mm -hmm. were probably the size of a tumtack. But, you know, (laughs) you'd send away from it, you'd get it, you'd be disappointed, but you'd still be happy you got a package in the mail. All that stuff, that's kind of the tone of what I wanted Midnight Mystery to be. And, you know, working without page limits, working uh, without any, you know, just self-imposed deadlines, just making sure that I was being honest to myself, to the tone. And then, of course, obviously sharing it with my wife, who would just be like, yeah, that looks good. And I'm like, OK, good. Thank you. I will proceed. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, just being able to get that and, and at the same time, not necessarily feel like I was letting anyone down. My audience was me. And if I was happy with it, then I knew I was hitting the right tone and then in that second tier, my audience is you, someone that gets the references, that understands, all right, tonight's a cool Sven movie. Great. I'm going to DVR it. I'm going to watch it. Or I understand that tone of Hammer Horror and, again, Kolchak and just the TCM film noir movies and being able to kind of honor the spirit of all of that and being able to do it in comics. I had to, like, find that love again. And when I did... It was Midnight Mystery and telling those stories and collecting them because I thought, you know what? I love single issues. There's something really neat about pulling out an old like John Buscema, like Submariner. I've really been into him for a while for the last, I don't know, maybe a few months and just like tearing it apart, kind of like reverse engineering his drawing, his pacing, the layouts and so amazing. And I think that's, again, as I'm kind of starting to really rework into the world of a midnight mystery, the idea of the creation of making something. And that's where these volumes came in. Being able to remix them means going back to art that I drew sometimes like three or four years ago and realizing that I have a better handle on Photoshop. I have a better handle on some inking techniques. And while I didn't want to go back and completely reinvent the wheel, I knew there were some pages that I'd sacrifice, you know, for virtue of limits. You're working with a publisher, you have to honor that's how they're going to sell ads. You have to honor that cuz that's what pays the bills. So, an issue that should be 33 or 34 pages for story, you know, you have to cut back a few pages. That's what these volumes have allowed me to do is not cut back. Add those extra pages that fill in some of the blanks on the stories and it's really all character just being able to go back and have those little in-between moments where King is driving with a client and they're talking about the relationships with their dads. None of these are like action scenes and big explosions or or things. It's really more, hey, you know, let's talk about this and then we'll get to the explosion in the greenhouse. You will get to that. But that's what's been kind of fun in remixing them and just understanding better color palettes, trying to get the mood across a little better. That's where the remix has been a lot of fun.
0: Those are the things I really appreciate that are in some of these older comics, older movies, as things are slowed down a bit. You can have those quiet moments or those small moments where two people are speaking. And it isn't the car explosion. It isn't the big chase. But it gives you much more insight into the character. And some of those things you just really remember besides the big things that happen in the book. So to have that freedom now, to add that in... It makes you happy, and by you being happy with the finished product, I'm going to love it, and other people who love it will love it. So if you love what you're doing, other people will too. I think it's Kevin Kelly's The Thousand Fan Theory. Marketing and business development has this
1: theory, The Thousand Fan Theory. He better explains it to himself. He has a really good blog article out there that kind of goes through it. But his idea, and I think he wrote it around the time Joss Whedon's Firefly was a really big deal. So we're talking probably early aughts or something like that. But just to give you context, the idea was that If you have a thousand fans that are not lukewarm fans, that are like blue flame fans, the folks that are going to buy the Joe Rogan mug, that are going to go out and buy the Golden Knights, I don't know, paperweight. That's when you start getting into hardcore fan world, and those are usually the folks that, if you can get a thousand of them, are usually the folks that can allow an artist, an artist like myself, like this is my side hustle, this is what I do for fun, just so happens that I can sell it and package it and I have a few people who buy it. But if you can get a thousand fans to do that and they spent say a100 dollars a year, you can make a living off of that. A few shirts, a hoodie, some prints, some collections. Uh, web comics thrive that way. Etsy artists, uh, musicians. Um, so I've always kind of prescribed to that idea that I probably don't make comics that everyone gets. And the mileage may vary when I reference things like Coachek the Night Stalker. But if there's enough people out there, maybe even a thousand that kind of get it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't have midnight mystery mugs um, (laughs) (laughs) or midnight mystery paperweights. But if I can get enough people to get it, then I can have good conversations like this and with folks who get it. And that's really interesting to me. That kind of keeps my fires burning. When folks are like, yeah, I like Midnight Mystery, are you going to do more? And I'm like, oh, somebody else who maybe gets what I'm trying
0: to do. Now that you are going to use your own publisher, you have your own site, are you going to do your marketing any differently? Marketing is my day job. So I'm
1: versed in the language of marketing. Like I get social media, SEO, I understand link building. I get it. And at the same time, when it's something that you love, I don't know, it's like the idea of The person who cleans houses for a living but their own home isn't necessarily as clean Mm -hmm. (laughs) so for my day job my clients happy i do a really good job for them and you know i guess i'll be a little egotistical i'm really good at what i do there when i think about comics i almost like the idea of making the comic that's enjoyable for me selling it is a little harder but i have started looking at it now as a all right if i'm doing this on my own i've always been active on social media trying to keep some level of frequency. Uh, you know, I try to keep a post a day so that way folks see that I'm doing something or even if it's just, hey, this is the movie I'm watching tonight and that way, you know, you know that, hey, I, I popped in uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes and maybe you like it. Maybe you're like, I don't know who is this guy. It's black and white. It looks old. And I'm like, yep, that's what I'm watching. <laughs> but again, the right people see it and then when they see that I'm drawing, I'll get the occasional message or comment that's like, oh, you make comics too. And I'm like, yep, just check out my feed. This is all inspired by that. You'll you'll see it all kind of pop in there. I'm not strategizing so much as saying, yeah, I think I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and, you know, trying to make myself more available to podcasters like you that get it, talking to folks, you know, online that understand it. Because again, I don't need a lot of folks and with conventions being uh, what they are and kind of the, the industry being a bit limited, especially in meeting people, the easiest way for me to kind of tout my wares is online and directing them to my website, directing them to social media. You get to see what I'm doing, let alone the movies that I'm watching. And I don't know, it gives you a little bit of a peek into who I am and if you know that, uh, you know, I'm catching up on Hammer Horror Films or going through the 80s miniseries, you're like, yep, I think I know what this guy's about. You know, I had a VCR too, I understand SP and EP. Yep, I, (laughs) I think he and I would have a good conversation at a con in the cafeteria while we're eating overpriced pizza. I will check out his midnight mystery. And if you get that far, great. If you don't, that's cool. Then you like V and you understand it.
0: And you touched on something that I think is very important when it comes to posting is that there is an authenticity to what you're posting. It's you. You don't have so much a strategy or a game or some way of saying, look at me. I'm over here. I'm over here. You know, it's just, this is what I'm doing right now. This is what I'm interested in. And it does center around what you love and what you do produce in terms of your work, the kind of things that inspire you that you like. And that's very authentic, and that's very, very important with social media. Absolutely. I mean,
1: I don't necessarily have hot takes about Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty-four, although it seems everyone else does. Um, <laughs> I don't have hot takes on, you know, the current state of politics and anything else like that. My hot takes are usually about comics, and for better or for worse, maybe that makes me a terrible dinner date. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to talk about John Buscema and how he drew his thighs, <laughs> that we could probably have a good conversation, and I will bring receipts and say, "Look at this! This is so great." Um, if you want to talk about jack kirby's work on the eternals that's great we can do that again i might make boring conversation for a lot of people (laughs) it's who i am for better or for worse so midnight mystery is definitely a byproduct of that
0: it's just this is what i am if you like it or not (laughs) now i remember listening to an mp3 that you had of a radio show oh yeah Uh, as a promotion when you first started putting out midnight mystery Do you think you'll ever get back to doing something like that? Let's say like a mini series, MP3s of like, here's some of the tapes that Zeke made.
1: So it's interesting you say that. So in volume one, I released The House That Satan Built. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of a prose with a little bit uh, with like eight, maybe, maybe nine different like one splash pages that I drew for it. Um, and that's the story that I turned into kind of like a old time radio inner sanctum, the shadow type story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was friends and my wife being very gracious and lending their voices and just a lot of time learning audio editing programs and trying to find royalty-free sound bites and music out there and kind of piecing it together. It was a lot of fun. So much fun that when I did Dead Letters, which is in Volume 2 of Midnight Mystery, which it's funny as we're talking today, maybe to date the episode, but that's okay. Um, I just got the UPS notification that I should get it tomorrow. Huh. So that'll be kind of neat. Um, that one includes Dead Letters, which has these signed, sealed, delivered story about the restless spirits that Ezekiel King has to try to bring some, uh, some measure of peace to. That's the one where I also hired a ton of voice actors and... At the end of the story, there's a QR code that takes you to a page on the website that's kind of hidden. And you can do a follow along like those old Marvel power records. Oh, yes. I like the OTR. It was neat. I like the dead letter thing. I'll probably do more like that where I'll go back and revisit some stories that lend themselves to kind of a a one off where you don't necessarily have to know a lot about the overarching conspiracy and the different uh, mythologies that I'm kind of laying out in midnight mystery, but that if you just read or in this case read and heard this one power record style recording, it would be enough for you to understand like, Oh, I get what midnight mystery is. This is kind of neat. But if you didn't want to pursue any of the stories, any else you'd get like, you know, 20 minutes of entertainment. So I have a few of those that I'm thinking about doing they just take a lot of time uh, just to, oh, yeah. you know, kind of figure out all the production values. And again, I have no mm-hmm. insight into this. It's literally a lot of YouTubing and Googling to find out, <laughs> you know, how to fade in something. Or again, you start getting into rights usage and what you have to credit on folks. And you want to be honest in the same way that I'd want someone to be honest in crediting my work. So emailing folks and saying, oh my God, this is great. You have." This sound package, that's like 500 bucks. And I really like song number 17. Could we come to an arrangement where I could like give you something for the one song? Because I don't (laughs) think I can afford the $500. That's where those things take time. And the end product is usually a lot of fun. But in that time too, I'm also drawing the comics. So I will get you more audio, Chris.
0: Excellent. Excellent.
1: (laughs) Speaking of audio, I wanted to ask you, you used to do a podcast. Yes. The Fan to Fan podcast. That's right.
0: Yes. Why did you stop?
1: That was about the time that I started to take comics uh, more seriously.
0: You do a podcast
1: and how you continue to find time with this, with work, with kids, with a spouse, with some sort of a life, even if it's just going out for a walk or like you said, reading some comics or watching a movie. It's hard because you have to balance all of this. And if you want to do it right, and Chris, you do it right. I'm patting you on the back, but go ahead and and pat yourself on the back too, because not everyone does. And there is a level of engagement that you have to have. and. It is very obvious because if you're engaged as the host and you really have paid attention to, in our case, comics, what the person created, what they wrote, what they drew, um, what they're publishing, whoever it is that you're talking to, it's obvious. And I think the level of intimacy that people have by being able to hear you in these earbuds in their head leaves you nowhere to hide, even if it is just audio, if you're not engaged, I can hear it because you'll run through the questions. It won't seem like you you know those little nuances regarding, you know, what happened to the character or the big beats in the story. And that you're just painting in broad brushes to have a guest and to kind of like check off a week where you can create content. And when I was starting to think about, all right, I have to pay attention to comics if I'm going to do this right. And there's a lot of me in Midnight Mystery. So, all right, do I have time to book guests to do the research to watch a movie, even if we're gonna just make comments on it, but just get beyond like Wikipedia trivia. Like how mm-hmm. do I feel about this movie or this book? Like, you know, I don't want to regurgitate stuff. What was my connection to this? Like, you know, and it sounds trivial when you start talking about like, oh yeah, I did a podcast episode on Flash Gordon, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the 80s movie. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I think about like the memories to that. And we were talking before about like sense memory and comics and being able to pick that up and There's so much charge with that. You know, I feel those things about movies where I remember as a kid sitting down, watching it on Fox 32 in Chicago and at five o'clock, all of a sudden, you know, you see Flash Gordon kick in and between the music and the actors and the tone and the colors, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is going to stick with me for the rest of my life. So if I'm going to do a podcast episode on it. Isn't that the best thing to talk about how it hit me and how it's affected, even how I look at making comics how i look at other movies how that set a the thing there's so much personal stuff in it that when i started thinking about the time i'm like all right i love making a podcast and maybe more importantly it's not the production i love i love talking to people especially people who had something to say but then if i wasn't going to honor the things i was talking about cuz i love those things if i wasn't going to honor them by giving them the right amount of time then maybe i should just kind of Take some time off or hang it up completely and get back to it eventually. So if you, Chris, are one of the few people that listen to it, um, thank you.
0: <laughs> well, you're welcome. And I completely understand what you're saying. If you can't put into it what you want to put into it and you're just not feeling it, you don't want to just check the box. You know, you have to have a good time doing it because, like we said earlier, if you're not having a good time, then listeners, readers, they aren't having a good time. You've heard of the Retroist podcast? I don't believe I have. You have to check with this one out, Kirk, because I think you'll really
1: like it. So the thing about the Retroist podcast is, and I have to say it in the beginning, the guy does these great episodes on everything that I'm assuming you and I would love, like playing Defender at the arcade as a kid and then buying it on Atari and thinking that you're going to be able to learn how to beat Defender so when you go back to Arcade you can you know, impress everyone and you realize they are not the same game mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> that mm-hmm. girl was not looking at you with the same eyes you thought she was going to because <laughs> you were the Defender master. Mm-hmm. Um, he just covers things that are really neat like Flash Gordon and Kolchak the Night Stalker and all that. But his tone is very monotone. But all the stories are so personal that when he talks about recording over his sister's like Three's Company (laughs) recording episodes that you're just like, yeah, no, I remember that. I mean, why anyone would record Three's Company? I don't know. But (laughs) I, I remember having those arguments with my brother and talking about like, all right, you know, are we going to record over this Chips episode? I don't know. That was a good one. But I don't know. I, I think we have to do it because this is a good Dark Shadows one. But aren't they all? I don't know. Let's talk about it. You know, <laughs> it's definitely a good show, The Retroist, that's worth checking out. I think you would enjoy it. But he covers things like that in a way that you could tell are very personal to him. And he shares those stories. It makes it that much more interesting to listen to versus somebody else who, again, is just regurgitating Wikipedia. And you're like, you know what? I get it. This was neat, but this was essentially a Google search. Tell me about you. Why do you like it? What's your connection?
0: Oh, that sounds great. That's exactly what I want to get from a podcast, how it affected that person personally. If I can find it online and read it, why would I want to listen to it? And speaking of media, videos, and so do you still buy media i do i know there's a lot of streaming now why bother it's online all the time you can watch all the marvel movies but do you still go out and say i want to have that on my shelf because i want to watch that a lot
1: i have a my dvd shelf that has slowly transformed i feel like i should have done one of those time-lapse videos where you could see them slowly being converted to blu-ray But at the same time, you would do a cutaway to my wife's expression and she's like, don't you already own that movie? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And just going to half price books and then cutting to my expression when you see how little I got for the movie Uh for the DVD version. I've (laughs) done that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I bought the DVD, this uh, special edition Army of Darkness that was released by Shout Factory before they were even a thing, you know, back in like. 2002 and i paid probably you know 20 bucks for it and i take it to half price books and they give me 50 cents but i'm using the 50 cents to buy the 39.99 blu-ray with the slip cover now (laughs) yeah Yeah. so yes i I have a shelf with some physical media and you know what i have done lately i think over the last like year or two i've definitely called my collection so that i can honestly say the stuff that i have is either Hard to get, as in like mentioned before, like the Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes, black and white cereals. They released a collection of those some time ago on Blu-ray. Not easy to get, a little pricey now, but you know, when I bought it, it was probably 30 or 40 bucks, but definitely something that even if I found it on YouTube, even if I found it on MeTV, I'd like to be able to always just be able to walk up to my shelf, grab it, pop it in and watch it like on a Sunday morning while drinking coffee. Yeah. So. I'll always have room on my shelf for some of those pillars, some of those stalwarts that I'm like, yeah, I want to watch Flash Gordon, but I don't necessarily want to navigate through Amazon's menu to get to it, even if I did own it. And I really doubt Amazon's going out of business anytime soon, so I feel good versus like Voodoo or any of those other (laughs) places that – when you would buy DVDs or Blu-rays, they would give you and you would go to like some website and redeem your digital code. Feel good about Amazon. But at the same time, I feel better about just going upstairs, going to my my shelf, grabbing it, sitting down and popping it in and not having to worry about uh, speeds or buffering or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I'm, I'm going to guess that, like you said, you're the same. But would you say that are you making more room for this stuff? Like, are you kind of like doing the opposite that I am where I'm being a little bit more closed off and saying... Well, do I really need Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? No, no. Let me rephrase. Does anyone really need Indiana Jones, (laughs) Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Or can I just get like Raiders, just like grab the good ones and just like grab those individually? Do I really need the set? I feel like I'm closing my heart to to some of these guys, but just keeping the good stuff. How about you? Where are you at? Are you in a place where you're getting more to kind of, I don't know, are you like the prepper? You're like, well, in case something happens and we lose them all, I want to make sure I have Dawn of the Dead, the George Romero European cut. I need to have it just in case.
0: I, like you, called quite a bit of my collection, took it to a bookstore that bought secondhand things, including some comics, uh, some records, which was dumb because now I have a record player again. (laughs) I'm just very careful how much I buy, but I still like to have certain things as a physical copy, especially things that are older, what I consider to be classics, be it Twilight Zone, Doctor Who, uh, Noir Films. Things like that. I wanted to prepare for a podcast I was going to listen to about Doctor Who. And they were covering the War Games, which is a 10-part Patrick Troughton story. And I used to have the VHS tape. And I junked a lot of them before I moved, which I hated to do because I thought, I'll never get these again. And there's Mm -hmm. stuff on there that was recorded off the television broadcast that is almost like a piece of history. Sure, It's not going to be on the DVDs. And then when it was coming out, the podcast— the DVD was hundreds of dollars because it's out of print. You think this stuff will always be in print? No. So what do I do? I've got to see it. So I order it through eBay, a VHS tape, and mm-hmm. I still have my VCR from like 20, 25 years ago, maybe longer, and I popped it in, and it works, and I very rarely buy videotapes. I think the other one I bought, (laughs) see, I'm doing it already, was A a Christmas Carol, Alistair Sims one from 1951. I used to have a copy, and I junked it, and I was like, well, I don't like these DVD copies. I'm going to get the tape I know I liked (laughs) so Um, I'm selective. Let's just put it that way. But I still do add things to the shelf just very carefully.
1: This is why we have this conversation, Chris, because I too have the Alistair Sim version of Christmas Carol. It's the only one I have. But I remember seeing it on Blu-ray many years ago and thinking – they used to air it on PBS fairly regularly until FX got the rights to it and then they started airing it. But it was a Christmas tradition. My brother and I, wherever we were – we would either call or text each other on Christmas Eve and usually around like 10, we would pop it in. It was just something that we did as a kid because that's when it was on on PBS when we were kids.
0: It was on Christmas Eve, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was there and it was available. And when I saw the Blu-ray, I thought, you know what? There probably will be a day when this will have, I don't know, lost its luster for a lot of people, but not for me and I want to have it available. So I'll just buy the Blu-ray because that'll make sense. And in those cases, those are the things that, that I enjoy buying. It's interesting. You mentioned VHS. It takes you right back to that place. And I and remember like watching episodes of DuckTales, like when I would go to the video store and, you know, you'd hear the looping and, you know, line of tale. And, and I miss those things. That's why that stuff is kind of neat because it's not necessarily always the thing. It's not the doctor who VHS or the storyline, but where you were when you first saw it, you know, maybe that also aired on PBS as well. Not as interrupted by much commercials, but I bet if you went back to those VHS you recorded off air, it would probably have some intros and outros that are specific to that time when you were watching it, the region you were watching it, and it just transports you back, and it's like that's better than anything you would ever be able to stream.
0: That's why it broke my heart to have to get rid of a lot of those, because I had a lot of those Doctor Whos from PBS, which at the end would have, I believe it was Jack Horkheimer, uh, the Star Hustler, and he had his little like two, three minute video of what's in the sky that night or coming up that Mm. week. So those things are gone, but I did keep a few. And I know that one of the Doctor Who's I have is the five doctors and it's during a fundraiser. Oh, one of the PBS uh, stations? Yeah, in Philly. So (laughs) I, I have that. I've always kept that one and a few others too. And I watch them with my son occasionally because he likes to watch Doctor Who. Even though we can watch it on demand on television through like Pluto, I like to get out the DVD or get out the tape and say, check this out. I used to have a bunch of the universal horror movies on VHS. Oh, wow. And I love the covers yeah. of them too. And I had to get rid of them
1: all. It's funny you say that because uh, I was watching Sven Gulen a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, by your comments on social media, I think you were watching it too, when they were airing uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. and I remember going to a Chicago con by the airport, and it was a Motor City con, which has since retired maybe 20 years ago now. But they had a tape of, I think it was 1985, when Sven and if you don't know who Sven is and you're listening to this, don't worry about Googling. I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) Sven is a horror host out of Chicago who's now made a name for himself nationally, maybe globally, but definitely one of the few horror hosts that has gone on very strong for many years and has been able to just continue that tradition of hosting horror movies, sci-fi movies, black and white color, the stuff that's so bad, it's good. And in some cases, just some rarefied classics like Creature from the Black Lagoon. But I remember going to that convention, they had the 1985 3D version of Creature. I want to say it was part three, maybe two. I'm have to think about this now. So maybe I do have to Google this.
0: I think part two was 3D. It's part two. That's it.
1: And they had 3D glasses available at 7-Eleven and Pizza Hut. And I bought it because I remember watching it as a kid. I mean, I was seven years old at the time, but I remember forcing my mom to go to Pizza Hut, less for the pizza and more for the 3D glasses. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey yeah. guys, I'm here to play basically the, the, the X-Men arcade game, get your 3D glasses and eat pizza in that order. So please, <laughs> let's just you know make with the pizza, but let's go. And then seeing that tape at a con, I want to see this for the commercials. You know, I want to be able to share this with my nephews, just like you share the Doctor Who tapes with your son. And just, you know, I'm sure your son's like, what is this telethon thing they're doing? What, why are they <laughs> right. doing this? I don't understand. Um, <laughs> why are they giving away this bag with the logo? And why are people paying $69.99 for this? I <laughs> exactly. don't understand that. Um, you know, just to see those old commercials, that's what it was for. It was kind of neat. You mentioning Twilight Zone. I mean, come on. You think about like Pluto and Tubi, YouTube. All these places, some of them have them, but you know, sci-fi channel, New Year's, you can sit down for 24 hours and watch Twilight Zone Mm -hmm. to your heart's content. Mm -hmm. But man, there's 364 other days where sometimes I really want to watch it. And if it's not on, then at least I know I can pop into Blu-ray and watch it and go through an entire disc of five or six episodes and get my fix. And maybe I don't pop it in for a few weeks, months or years. But I have it there within reach when I want to watch it.
0: You mentioned Svengulli, and it's something I have to watch, or if I can't get to a DVR every week, because my wife will be like, do you want to watch a movie with the kids? It's Saturday. Svengulli's on. Come on. Mm-hmm. It's To me, it's like an event, because there's the comedy around the movie. There's the commentary he makes in between. And it's just fun. I know it's recorded. I don't care. I want to watch it live, quote-unquote. And I love the stuff you put on Instagram where you have the movie posters from all over the world for these movies in foreign languages and everything. And it's really neat to have that in addition to watching the movie. That, I don't know,
1: speaks to the artist in me. I remember always, (laughs) as I make a motion on a podcast, not like anyone can see this, but there was a Kevin Smith special where he talked about meeting Tim Burton Mm -hmm. and he's just like, you know, he's an artist and then he makes this really exaggerated motion. He's like, oh no, he's an artist. I never think about myself that way. I'm a very functional, pragmatic artist, right? I want to do this stuff, but I like it. But there's something about finding posters for these classic and sometimes not so classic movies, but being able to see the French poster, the Belgian poster, the Swedish poster. And you see the variation in design, in colors, in font choices. I don't know. It's just so neat. I was starting to do it for myself and just saving some of the pictures, you know, just like, oh, say photo. This is neat. I'm going to look back at this again because this is a really interesting choice of font or colors that I would never think of doing for my own design. And then I just started sharing a few and then I had enough people I probably get. I mean, no joke, Chris, maybe like four or five emails a week just messages online where people are like, hey, I'm really looking forward to, you know, the Frightful Five Fingers this weekend, so hopefully you found some really good ones. And I'm like, pressure much? I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can do a Google image search and probably find what I'm going to find. But it's neat. It just adds an extra layer to the movie that, at least for me, I'm like, hey, if... Rich Cozes, ghoulies, commentary, and the skits, if it wasn't enough, just being able to see those posters is kind of cool.
0: A couple things I watched in the past couple years that I hadn't seen before, and you probably have, and I watched them probably for the same reason. One was the Avengers TV show, which I caught this when I first arrived in Las Vegas. I'm here by myself. I catch it on TV in the morning, and they're showing the old Honor Blackman ones and before, and I'd never seen them. And I thought they were really cool for two reasons. One, they were very English. This isn't how (laughs) American people see the English. This is very English. And two, it's basically live. So when something gets screwed up, you just have to keep going. And that's what I thought was so cool about that. And the other, which I've been watching, oh, for the past several months, Dark Shadows, I've never watched it. I knew about Mm. it. Never watched it. Same thing. It's live, basically, a live soap opera. Now, the pacing is pretty slow. You know, well, I'm going out. Well, I don't care if you go out. I don't care what you do. Okay, why are you going out? Tell me. I don't want to tell you. Okay, don't tell me. Oh, you must tell me. I'm exaggerating. That's, but it's kind of that pacing. No, you're, you're not that far off, Chris. That's, <laughs> that's
1: how they filled the in time. a 45-minute runtime. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that that's about right. I, I remember when they aired it on Sci-Fi, and that's uh-huh. when I was in college. And yeah. that was uh, mid-90s and that's how i was exposed to dark shadows and they also would run avengers you know we're talking about steed and emma Mm -hmm. peel uh avengers they would run marathons for those and that was my exposure to things that were on well before me or were very british and maybe just didn't make it to pbs and Mm -hmm. you know i was aware of them peripherally but wasn't sure but yeah definitely dark shadows has a soap opera pacing To it and especially in some of the filming because it does feel like how in Twilight Zone where they would change the different film type on some episodes and when they went to like the hour-long episodes, Mm -hmm. you would see that film quality. It did feel a little different. You would have less film grain and it was just, I don't know, a different type of stock but that's how Dark Shadows look where it feels like, you know, there is a live studio audience. It feels a little different. The pacing feels a little clunky but man, I mean, I want to say 20 seasons maybe. For that show, let alone with some like made for TV movies. It stuck around for a long time. It had a lot of
0: fans it's different it's cool and uh, it's an acquired taste I guess because it isn't really fast it's a little slow in some places but the atmosphere though the thing that we both love about horror movies and a lot of these shows is the atmosphere they create that's the thing I really like about them that reminds me of
1: Kolchak which again Colchak uh, the Night Stalker which some folks may not be familiar with but essentially it's if you don't look at Midnight Mystery no I did not steal Kolchak the Night Stalker <laughs> Kolchak the Night Stalker takes place in the 70s Midnight Mystery takes place in the I don't know maybe 50s but it is about a reporter Carl Colchak, who's played by, as my buddy likes to call him, the old man from A Christmas Story. <laughs> so, uh, and he plays kind of this carmudgeony Chicago reporter who, like Ezekiel King in Midnight Mystery, he goes out to cover a story about, uh, I don't know, a hotel magnate who's going to open up a new fancy building in downtown Chicago. But it turns out, that the building's foundation was on an ancient Native American burial ground, and then hilarity ensues. Um, you know, So there's a little bit of drama, an attempt at journalism, and always kind of this uh, O. Henry ending where you realize, oh, well, wait, Kolchak has run into this before when he was in Seattle. No, wait, Vegas. Oh, no, somewhere else. But somewhere where he dealt with the supernatural, <laughs> right. and he knows how to talk to a medium who can get him the artifact he needs to be able to take the curse off and help him write a really good story. That was a show that I was introduced to also on sci-fi channel where one morning getting ready for class, I see it and I'm like, wait, so this is in the seventies love boat and like chips and like all that stuff that I used to watch. I'm like, how did this get past me? Okay, let me check this out. And then because he's, uh, I don't know, he's such a good everyman in, in that show, Carl Kolchak, you get a sense that this is how I would react if I was dealing with the supernatural, you know, I would be a little scared, but I'd have no clue where to start if someone's like, "Hey, my house is haunted, Bernie, what are you going to do?" I'm like, "I don't know." And he would treat it that way, and that gave some level of accessibility to his character where he was anchored in, you know, reality and in practicality where he's like, "I don't know, I have to talk to a medium, and if not a medium, a college professor, but I'm going to try to find out how to undo this spell." And he would go through the motions Just like you would a journalistic story. And then by the time it's done, you're like, yeah, I kind of believe that as crazy as this lizard in the sewers episode is, I don't know, this conclusion made sense. And I like this guy and it makes sense. So to be fair, that day I did not go to any classes. I just watched (laughs) all like 10 episodes back to back to back of Kochak. But again, that dark shadows like Avengers are all the things that have stayed with me, seemingly with you too, and just kind of like inform the things that you enjoy. And things like you said, like that Saturday night movie with Sven Gulli, where there's probably an, an assurance where, you know, you can sit with your kids and say, I know the kind of movie he's going to share. And I know the kind of discussions we can have because I remember some of these movies. And if I don't, then that's great. We can all discover this together as a family.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And feel that it's safe for them to watch. Absolutely. I have yes. to tell you one that I saw on Sven and I'd never seen it before outside of Sven was Mr. Sardonicus. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you've never seen that before? No. Wow. Okay. That was something else. The uh, the smile. Just, uh, whew, they had a warning for that, I think, too, on Sven Yeah,
1: that was definitely uh, an interesting one. He's aired a few, I want to say, over the last few months, because you could tell when there's a run of movies that he has the rights to show, like feature from the Black Lagoon, but then when you start getting into The Black Cat and some very early like Boris Karloff oh, films that... Or, or even some of like the William Castle, not even the good ones, uh, you know, like the Tingler or something, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. like something where you're just like, oh, yeah, uh, I'm going to record this, but I might fast forward through this one a little bit. You know, yeah. those are the, you know, my wife is, you know, watching something Sunday morning and maybe I'll watch it on another TV and I'm like, I'm going to watch this one for the skits or when he does kind of like the throwback uh-huh. skits. because exactly. uh, I don't know that I like this movie that much, but. I feel like I'd be cheating on Sven Gulli if I don't DVR
0: it. (laughs) He showed one that my wife actually sat with me and watched the whole thing. It was a made-for-TV movie called Gargoyles. And I thought it was really good for TV and for like mid-70s too. Uh, What is it? The guy who created Kolchak.
1: He wrote a one-episode movie that was kind of supposed to be a made-for-TV movie that was supposed to be kind of like a pilot, a backdoor pilot for a series called The Norless Tapes. Have you heard of that?
0: No. Oh,
1: Chris, The Retroist and The Norless Tapes. Forget Midnight Mystery. Just check those two (laughs) things out. Those are well worth checking out. Norless Tapes is about a novelist who, and mind you, I did not steal this. You know, I may have borrowed a few things. He's a novelist who goes to a small town and he records the different supernatural things he deals with on tapes. And then all of a sudden, the writer disappears and his editor finds the tapes. So in playing the tapes, they're kind of going through what this novelist was dealing with and obviously the supernatural things that happened to him and that he experienced. It's really neat. It has a Kolchak vibe to it. And even some of the music is very similar to Kolchak in that kind of like good or bad 70s way, whatever whatever you decide. But I want to say he also wrote gargoyles and there was another made for tv movie as well that i think he might have written about uh folks who kind of like move into this house and the caretakers are a little wacky but yeah some of those 70s maybe early 80s made for tv films are really neat gargoyles was a good one
0: One i remember and i have not seen this on spangoolie it was salem's lot
1: oh yeah that's a hard one to find online that one does not pop up as often as you would think it is and especially with like some of the design work for the vampires, it was really well done. It was
0: genuinely creepy. Mm-hmm. Wasn't David soul in that one? I couldn't tell you. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going strictly from memory from decades ago because I have not seen it since. I remember talking
1: to a friend of mine, Pete, who does a adequately named So Bad It's Dot 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 Podcast, where they talk about So Bad They're Good Podcast. And I'll give him and his co-host a job full credit because they came up with the perfect phrase for movies like Gargoyles and all this is there's an awful earnestness to them because you could tell the people that made it thought they were making a good movie. They really did. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a few of the years down the line, we're watching it. We're like, "Eh, not so good, but still fun to watch. But I remember um, he had talked about Salem's Lot and how he had read the book and how there's so much more in the book, but that the movie was still really fulfilling. So we watched it for uh, an episode of the podcast when I was going with it. And I'm like, oh, this is really neat. Just kind of seeing it through Pete's eyes and someone who's read the book and he's like, oh, and then they missed this out and they didn't address this. And this is kind of like never even brought up in the movie. I'm like, oh, this is cool. A movie through another person's eyes.
0: Yeah, man, that's some pretty cool stuff. Now you can see why folks, we don't want to release certain things. We don't want to let go of certain tapes and certain DVDs. <laughs> they may never be seen again. Cause you think this stuff's going to be available forever, but we've seen it happen where it's almost like Disney with that special release. And then it's gone for decades. Absolutely. Your heart
1: drops out when you end up going to like, again, like a bookstore or half price books or something like that, and you sell something, and you think, all right, well, maybe I really don't need a copy of Top Secret on DVD. Like, when am I ever going to revisit Top (laughs) Secret again? But then all of a sudden, you know, I'll see Airplane On, and I'm like, oh, all right, well, I know I have Airplane One and Two. Let me go grab that. Then I'll watch that, and I'm like, huh, now I'm in the mood for Top Secret. Man, I shouldn't (laughs) have sold it, because now I'll have to go watch History of the World, and when I'm done with that, I'll still be in the mood for, and then I'll watch High Anxiety, and then it'll all take me back to Top Secret. So, Sometimes uh, it's better just to hold on to those things, and uh, you know, buy more shelving. That's all you can do. <laughs> you don't miss it till
0: it's gone, and then you that's get right. that craving. And it's when it's gone. And speaking of cravings, it's interesting how you're focusing right now. You have a a, a hunger for Buscema's artwork, and that's mm-hmm. kind of influencing your stuff. Because I'll get into the same mode where I'm reading a certain kind of comic. Last year, a lot of it was uh, Kubert. War Stories. I was reading a lot of those, and I've been reading lately a lot of Westerns.
1: I've noticed that you've had a few uh, kid colts in your Instagram, and uh, there's some really good Kirby covers on there. I want to say I've gone through a Kirby phase, but if you get into a Kirby phase, you're never really out of it. What's available? What's been re-released? Uh, what's in an absolute edition that you can now have an excuse to rebuy so that you can have a better looking version of it? When you had your move, I remember you talking about how you had to really condense the number of long yeah. boxes. So, mm-hmm. of course, you know, trying to drive the stake through your heart about <laughs> some yeah. of the things that, uh, that you had. But in a positive way where it's like, hey, I'm sure some of the stuff that you kept is because, like, yeah, you had that much more of a connection to it. And maybe now as you're kind of settled, you're going back in either – Finding few things that maybe you had to part ways with or things that you're like, you know what, I'm okay without it because, hey, I discovered this new thing.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Some things I said, oh, I want to get this back again. So I would go and buy it. But I'm not like a crazy uh, two long boxes of things I used to have. I I can't do that. But I kept a lot of things that meant something to me either because I read them when I was a kid. They're like my original comics and there's like two boxes of those. That's it. And the rest of things I bought slowly over time that are the older books like the Silver Age and the Bronze Age And then, like, books with people like you have my Mm -hmm. copies of Midnight Mystery because there's some connection there to the person that worked on it. I've spoken to them. I've talked to them. So instantly it means more to me, and I can't part with it. But, yeah, I've gone back in and filled things that I was missing, things I wanted to get to, some new things. And one thing, since you mentioned Kirby, that was really cool I found was a copy of Gunsmoke. This is something that Marvel put out right around the Atlas Marvel era, and it had Kid Cold in there and another character – And they had Jack Kirby's Black Rider. And I think he did a couple of issues of it back in the 50s. And this seemed to be something that was left over that was never before published. Because when I look at it, Kirby's artwork looks a lot like his 40s style, he would use a circle for one of the panels. Sure, yeah. The figures are much longer looking and skinnier. Not quite that Kirby power look to them. So it looked more like his stuff from the 50s or late 40s. It was weird in a good way. Like This is definitely Kirby.
1: I wonder if that was when he was working with Joe Simon.
0: It looks like it.
1: It does? Okay. Because I remember the sci-fi strip that he worked on. He did some artwork for it. But if you see his artwork for that, you could definitely tell... And I know I'm doing a disservice to the person that he worked with. It's a very well known comic book artist. Uh, but there was a way where he adapted some of his style to make sense with the strip. So when I think about you mentioning Gunsmoke, I'm like, oh, that's not too different from Alex Toth. You have done like a, a Bonanza or something. Mm-hmm. There'll be a random Western in there that you're like, oh, this feels like Toth. Like it has some of his stuff in there. Like you said, there's some Kirbyisms in that uh, Black Writer book. But. You could tell it's like they're not there yet or there's a little bit of it. It's not until they do their own thing like Toth does the Zorro stuff. And it's like, oh, there's so much Toth in there that that was just dripping Alex Toth in ink. And just like when Kirby kind of gets to move on and does some kid cult stuff, let alone, you know, the other Kirby stuff he does where you're like, oh, wow. okay, this is who he is. Yes. Got it.
0: Yeah, I would say it's more like the kind of um, more like his early cap or maybe Mm -hmm. uh, fighting American. That, oh, he, okay, that he wow. did with Joe so Simon. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, and I, I hate to wrap up now because we're having such a good time, but tell everyone where they can find Midnight Mystery and how they can also subscribe to your newsletter on the website to learn and follow more about your creations.
1: Yeah. Try to make it easy. Uh, this is the me wearing my marketing hat. I want mystery.com. So that's the website I want mystery.com. And if you go to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, You'll find me at I Want Mystery on all three of them. Chris and I have been talking about, you know, I'll post anything from retro horror movie posters that I think are fun and worth sharing. I'll share behind the scenes artwork in the production of Midnight Mystery, everything from inks to colors to highlights of panels, even full pages. Now that I've been remixing some pages, I'll kind of do a before and after so folks can kind of see, uh, you know, what I've changed. There's been some progression and, you know, give you a few hints on where the story's going. Yeah, and that's where you'll also hear about the upcoming volumes. So I mentioned earlier Volume 2 I should have in my hands uh, this week, maybe as early as tomorrow, uh, Knock on Wood. Volume 3, I don't know if this is much of a scoop, Chris. I've actually had Volume 3 now for about a month <laughs> in my hands. Oh, okay. Um, it's just the way the printing worked out. I, you know, I've probably uh, you know, not respected the numbering gods <laughs> from 1 to 3. It's just the way it went. You know, I'm lucky to be working with uh, Wes Loker again, who's the letterer. Mm -hmm. He worked with me before and he's brought back the band again for some stories that, uh, you know, you saw a nice uh, little sneak peek of some new stories that are coming in volume two. uh, Messenger of Murder, The Widowing Whale. Um, There's also Last Words that's going to be in that one. But yeah, so you'll see new volumes of Midnight Mystery. There are more on the way. There's a really fun one that I'm kind of starting to work on now you know, this is a kind of a fun experiment because it's essentially the secret history of Ezekiel King, where we go back to his exploits in World War II. And the first time that he's ever kind of encountered something in the world of the supernatural, but it's very much something personal. And it's delved in a little bit in volume two, in one of the new stories, a messenger of murder, where you see a little bit of of what that personal connection is. I was talking about this with my wife the other day, maybe about over 10 years ago, before I even knew her, I'd drawn 150 pages of this, Chris, 150 pages. Um, And they've just been sitting with me in all of our moves and in my office upstairs. They're all there. It turns out that, you know, the character has always kind of looked like Ezekiel King Mm -hmm. so as I was kind of revisiting those 150 pages, that big fat stack, and I'm like, I've got to do something with it. It's a really neat World War II story, but I always knew it was going somewhere left of center. It was always never going to be just like a, you know, Sergeant Rock, you know, talking Mm -hmm. about Joe Cuber kind of story. There's going to be something left of center that involves supernatural or something sci-fi, and when I started working on Midnight Mystery, I'm like, wait, I had always drawn his origin, I just didn't know it yet, so I'm going back and revisiting that 150-page stack, and this is where the remixing comes in, you know, as I'm scanning them in, doing some alterations to faces, or realizing that I can probably draw a Spitfire a little better now, (laughs) so I'll go back and clean it up a little bit, or, Mm -hmm. you know, play around with the sky, so that's been kind of fun to work on, because I I do want to keep releasing Midnight Mystery, I think there's enough people out there that seem to enjoy it, and I think, uh, you know, having kind of found a good pace for myself, where... I know what I have to do for my job. I know what I have to do for my family. I know where my commitments are. I have found a time for comics again and I want to keep releasing some more Midnight Mystery as best as I can. But at the same time, you know, I just have full devotion to me. If I can keep these fun for myself and then keep them fun for folks like you, then I can't really disappoint a publisher schedule or a solicitation schedule If I do one volume a year, that's 120 pages. I'm very happy with that. That's great. Folks can visit IWantMystery.com, and in probably a few days from now, you'll see volumes one, two, and three, and there
0: will be more on the way. Excellent, keep them coming, Bernie. Thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Awesome, thank you, Chris. And I can confirm that volumes one, two, and three of Midnight Mystery are available on MysteryComic.com. All right, so what's coming up? I've recorded a few interviews already, One is a first-time guest who is the co-host of a sci-fi podcast of a TV series from the UK that I'm very fond of, and he is also the author of a new fantasy graphic novel being published through Dark Horse. Last weekend, I had the opportunity to interview three ladies who worked on a graphic novel that will dive into the fascinating, unexpected, and inspiring stories behind the greatest women writers in the English language. I will share more about these interviews and who they are with as I get closer to the release date. Now I don't want to say too much about these interviews because these are in the works. They've been confirmed but it's not done until it's done. But what is planned are two returning guests, one with a new release about a lost horror silent film. No, it is not London After Midnight. This is one I was not familiar with and I think you will find the story and the research behind it Fascinating. I have another returning guest who has a sci fi anthology series, and a third returning guest who has an Asian noir comic coming out, and then in a couple of months, a conversation with a comic book creator couple that have not been on the show before. And then I have a new guest. Well, I'll get to that later, but in the meantime, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at TalksPod. I will let you know when these interviews will be coming out. And also, on social media, I post my Silver Age and Bronze Age comics from my collection. If you wish to contact me directly, my email address is creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com. That is the best way to reach me. That's it for this week. I'll be back in two weeks. Thank you for spending some time with me and listening to the show for creator talks. I've been your host, Christopher Calloway until next time.